2: Welcome back, everyone, to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, here with another episode, trying to become better habitat managers. I have my trusty co-host on the other line, Brian. How you been, man?
0: Doing good, Jared. How's everything going?
2: Well, busy. Um, you know, hunting season here, the gun season's almost done, and with that, usually means. Uh, you know the deer hunting just drops right off, so it's it's tough. But I've been hunting hard. Um, don't you know, have a ton to show for it in terms of of uh, big buck sightings. This year was kind of weird with the rut, but um, you know, been getting after it. How about you?
0: Yeah, right in the middle of the Ohio gun season. Pennsylvania also, but I'm I'm tagged out in PA. I do have a couple doe tags I can use in Pennsylvania, but I've got my buck and my doe from Pennsylvania. Uh, Ohio's been kicking my butt. Had some great encounters with some mature bucks on my property, but uh, just just out of archery range in archery season, and then this week we opened uh, rifle season, or I shouldn't say rifle season, it's straight walled cartridges or shotguns or muzzle renders for Ohio. Um, opened that with uh Pretty much an entire day full of downpouring rain, and it was just miserable. Not many deer moving, uh, tough to sit out there. I don't know about you, but I'm not a big fan of rain and cold. I, I need to get a couple of those uh, box lines
3: mm-hmm. built
0: like our buddy Al or uh, hit the lottery or get some sponsors for some some <laughs> okay. of those sweet uh, high-end condominium blades.
2: Yeah, if there's any if there's anybody listening who uh, has an in at a blind company to the podcast, let us know. <laughs> we we need a blind sponsor bad. Um, I'm with you. Uh, opening day in Michigan was like that last year, and it's amazing the amount of deer that that don't get shot um, when it's crummy weather like that. Uh, it's a you know thousands of deer make it through the day when normally on a nice cold, crisp morning, you know, they'd be running around. So, I don't know, maybe, sure. maybe you got to look at it, uh, you know, on the positive note and not all your shooters got shot. I don't know.
0: Right, right. That, and that's probably what it comes down to. It's not so much that the deer aren't moving, it's that the hunters aren't moving. We all like to say we're tough as nails and we're out there grinding. But uh, some days you're like, well, it's time to head back to the camp. <laughs>
2: Well, you sent me some pictures. I have proof you were out there grinding. So, oh uh, man, I've
0: never, gr- I've never grinded so hard with two deer already in the freezer. It's it's, it's been it's been interesting.
2: Now, were you seeing deer at all uh, the last couple weeks, or any shooters at all, or what?
0: Well, we did definitely see a pretty significant lockdown, you know, right around the fifteenth of November, but. Uh, Leading up to that and following that, I did have some encounters. Uh, two of my bucks that I've had on camera, I, I got to see one at 50 yards and one at 75 yards just out of bow range. And and that's a win. I mean, we're talking yeah, about becoming better habitat managers and getting closer to deer. So it's it's coming together. A little bit frustrating, but, you know, getting within 50 yards of a mature buck, it's, it's exciting.
2: Yeah, which bucks were those?
0: Uh, they were both ten points. One one is probably 140s deer, and the other one, he's he's a lot heftier. Wow. The one that looked like a horse that looked like a horse that I sent you, he's probably. I wouldn't be surprised if he's not on 160.
2: Holy cow, man! Yeah, I mean, you had a pretty good season then overall so far. I mean,
0: yeah. Yeah, I can't complain at all.
2: How, it was that habitat plan that you put in play uh, from Eric? who will hopefully get on the podcast. Um, did that make a big difference from last year when you didn't have that in play? or?
0: 100%. Really? 100%. Okay. And, and he, he, he tried to tell me, you know, you don't have to do this all in one year, but I, I, I did uh, my darndest to prove him wrong that I was going to try to do it in a year. <laughs> <laughs> well, and look at the deal uh,
2: around. I mean,
3: it must have helped.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and – and luckily, uh, like the, the hinge cutting that I do in, in February and March, you get enough sun on it. You'd be surprised how that turns around so quickly in just three months. And, and even, even some of the old fields, like we've talked about before, I had that 10 acre field that I turned into an amazing part of habitat with the corn and the alfalfa and the Egyptian wheat screening. I mean, it's a lot of work and a lot of time, but. You can do it. You can do it in just a couple of months to get ready for the season.
2: And that was out towards the road, correct?
0: Yeah, that's the south end of my property, which runs along the county road. That's correct.
3: And
2: were the deer was all... out there towards the road more so than before?
0: They sort of hug the, the tree line. Uh, you got the road, then you got a 10-acre field, and then a 20-block 20 acre block of timber okay they're more coming out of the timber to to get into those fields but i noticed this year during hunting season as i was pulling in at night when i would get up there late in the evenings they would be crossing that road after dark and they got okay. trails speed all through there so it is it is pulling them in from awesome other places
2: oh good work man no that sounds uh that sounds like a all your hard work paid off i'm i was sitting there in my stand um saw a lot of deer. I saw a lot of young deer in November. Uh, I saw one buck I would have shot, and a hot doe took him and some other bucks um, right off the property into the swamp and gone. Uh, he, he showed back up on camera like two nights later, but I, I have not seen a daylight shooter since that one sighting, so um, I don't know. I actually put more time in than I thought I would have been able to with the baby boy. And uh, I got my mom over here helping with my wife. And, you know, actually worked out really well. But I uh, just, just was wasn't, wasn't seeing them. And so I don't know. I don't know if anybody else experienced uh, kind of a weird rut. But to me it was it was not that great. I mean, it was ebbs and flows. So but what I was getting at was what I did. had lots of time to... Determine what the heck I need to do to my property in terms of thickening things up. I can see way too far once uh, mid-November hits.
3: So
0: right. What do you think played a role in the in the lack of the running activity? Was it the weather or something else going on?
2: Good question. Um, I think we had better than ever weather. Uh, we had cold weather right up yeah, front in mid-October, and and I and i waited till like november 1st to really get after it and i checked cameras and i had daylight pictures of bucks prior to that um where last year i did not so i think my habitat work brought some better deer along with the the colder weather brought some better deer on their feet to my property i just wasn't there cuz i was waiting for november um right I think that was the first mistake, so I, I don't think it was the weather, I just think uh, maybe it happened a little bit earlier, maybe I missed the boat on timing, or um, or just when you do get that that October, late October moon, and that, uh, that early cold weather, I've heard it can be one of those trickle ruts to what some of the other guys talk about, and I'm not sure if that's true or not, because I, I saw some great deer on camera, my neighbors have great deer on camera, in the daylight, just... It just didn't work out. So,
0: Who knows, man?
2: That's that's deer hunting for
0: you, right? Yeah, I had the same experience in Pennsylvania and Ohio. I, I was uh, hunting around home here in Pennsylvania the last week of October because I really don't start taking my vacation time until Halloween and then into November, and I'll hit it hard in Ohio. But I killed that fucking PA on the 26th of October Yep. and checked my cameras in Ohio. I had... Mature bucks on daylight, you know, that that whole last week of October. Even some on the 26th, the same day I killed the buck in PA. So I think with that, with that, um, running moon, I think they call it, and and the cold weather, I think you're right. I think mature bucks started getting uh, on their feet a little bit earlier, and I sort of missed the boat up in Ohio too for that, but worked out in PA, so I'm not going to complain too much.
2: Nope, and you still have, uh, some, like, I, I'm not sure if Ohio is affected as bad after the gun season. Um, you know, you still might get some some activity on your late season stuff where here I'm just waiting for a deer to not be nocturnal. So.
0: <laughs> Especially with all the food, I, they, they'll be coming eventually. Once the food runs out everywhere else, I'll be the only game in town. So yes, definitely going to happen. I just have to man up and <laughs> deal with the cold and try to get one.
2: Again, if you are a listener and know of any box-flying company, <laughs> <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, enough about you and I. Um, who we got on the table for uh, the guests tonight?
0: Not most people know him. He's the communications director for Quality Gear Management Association, Lindsey Thomas, Jr. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be a great discussion.
2: Oh, yeah. No, I'm... Uh, I'm super pumped about this one. I mean, I've been reading that magazine for years, and uh, you know, this the the QDMA is such a great resource and such a great association that um, Absolutely. I just I can't wait to to pick his ear on on some habitat stuff and some CWD stuff and uh, and all kinds of questions. So, you know, without further ado, what do you say we give him a call and get Lindsay on. And welcome back to the Habitat Podcast, everyone. We have Lindsey Thomas Jr. with us. Are you on, Lindsey?
1: I'm here, Jared. All right. Thanks for coming on, sir. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this. I really appreciate it.
2: Oh, no problem. No problem, Brian. You there?
0: I'm here, Jared. Rock and roll.
2: All right. Well, guys, we um we've been busy hunting the last few weeks and. We need to get back into some habitat discussion as uh, habitat season is coming up real soon here. Um, Lindsey, when do you guys go from hunting back to habitat season? You still got a lot of hunting season left, right?
1: Yeah, we do. Here in Georgia, uh, we go through the first week of January. Um, so yeah, we uh, it'll be you know then before we really kind of turn back to habitat work.
3: Okay, how about you, Brian?
0: Well, the uh, season at my Ohio farm will go through first weekend of February. Uh, we usually start doing some TSI right after that, and uh, coming up with a game plan to what we're going to do for the rest of the year.
2: Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm about early early January as well. We're done on January first, so it's about a month away. Time to start writing things down. So yeah, it's
1: coming up quick. <laughs>
2: Lindsey, you know, uh you've listened to one or two of these before from uh, what you told me and how we like to start this is find out, you know, who you are exactly so the listeners can understand where you're from. You know, tell us about yourself if you don't mind.
3: Okay.
1: Well, I'm the director of communications for QDMA, the Quality Deer Management Association. Uh I was born and raised here in Georgia, uh in southeast Georgia down near the coast and Fortunate uh, in my job with QDMA to still be here in my home state. Uh, QDMA's national headquarters is in Athens, Georgia, uh, the home of the University of Georgia, and close to Atlanta. Um, and uh, what, as a communications director for QDMA, what I do for them is uh, primarily editor of the membership magazine Quality Whitetails, and also editor of QDMA.com, and then, uh, over the website and all of the email and social media communications that QDMA does, along with my team, uh, Brian Grossman, who's my communications manager, and, uh, our graphic designers. It's a fairly small crew, but, but we handle all of communications for QDMA.
2: Perfect. Yeah, no, that's, uh, yeah, quite a lot of hats there. Um, and that magazine you guys put out is just awesome, by the way.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. We worked pretty hard at it, and we did we've got a lot of good help. We've got a lot of good yeah. contributors. Um, been trying to get Brian in the magazine. He's been working on an article, so uh, uh, looking forward to to getting and getting that in there eventually. But we oh,
2: cool. we've got a
1: lot of great a lot of great help and a lot of great contributors.
2: No, that's awesome, Brian. What article are you working on?
0: Well, I got a lot of catching up to do and brushing up to do, and life <laughs> kind of gotten away, but. Lindsay's real patient, and he's a super editor, and he's really giving me some tips to take it to the next level. So oh, hopefully cool. something soon.
2: Oh, that's awesome. Can't wait to see that. So, Lindsay, do you – um is, it, is that part of, all, like, all the email blasts that we get, uh, things like that as well, like some of the Facebook posts, or is that kind of a different – under a different branch?
1: Nope. We handle uh, – Brian Grossman, my communications manager, is – does much of the day-to-day social media so yeah facebook post, twitter instagram um he is the point and the lead guy on all of that uh we both put together the weekly newsletter and much of the content that's on the website um so that's brian and i together and uh and, and keeping the website up and then producing the magazine it comes around every two months so we've actually got a deadline next week so we're kind of uh, trying to crank out a magazine right now while maintaining a daily social media and and email presence, and, and so it gets a gets a little hectic for us around deadline time. Uh, but uh, but we'll we, we'll make it through.
2: Okay, and how how much uh, work goes into that magazine? Would you say? You know, how how much time do you guys spend on that? Um, I know it comes out quart- uh, monthly, right? So,
1: yep. Yeah, six issues a year. It's, you know, it's a year-round job. Um, but I would say that the really intense work comes down with each issue to the last three weeks, really, before our deadline uh, when it really gets intensive in terms of, um, you know, because we spend year-round working with writers, planning articles, planning content, uh, and setting deadlines, getting the articles in. And then then we go through a fairly rigorous editing process, and that involves not just editing, when I when I mean editing, I'm talking about not just grammar and, uh, you know, links and things like that, but also once we're done with kind of the true uh, journalistic editing, we run it through wildlife biologists on staff, Kip Adams and Matt Ross. Uh, or in our conservation team, and they are both wildlife biologists, and they read every page of the magazine before it goes to press. Uh, we often even put pages out to other experts. If, for example, if we had a uh, an article that's very uh, focused on forestry methods, we might seek an additional outside expert on forestry and have them proofread it. So we go through uh, a very intensive proofreading process, primarily to make sure all of our information in there is accurate and supported by the latest science. Uh, We don't step out there and tell people anything about deer or habitat or what they should be doing or deer biology um, if it is not supported um, by science and and the latest knowledge on those things, agronomy techniques, forestry knowledge, deer biology, all of that. So it's, you know, that's really uh, one of the tougher parts of getting the magazine done is layout design, proofreading, making sure uh, we've got all our facts right.
2: Oh, very nice. No, I like the sounds of that. sounds like it's a very uh, credible resource, and I've always enjoyed it, um, as long as I've been getting the issues. Now, before you were at QDMA, what did you do before that? How did you get into uh, habitat work, and how did that lead into the QDMA?
1: Okay, well, um, I've been at QDMA for 15 years now, um, and prior to that, my background is journalism. Uh, I got my degree at at the University of Georgia in, in journalism and uh, went to work uh, shortly after college for Georgia Outdoor News Magazine, which is the state's number one hunting and fishing publication specific to Georgia. And I worked for them as an editor for nine years. Um, and then the job opportunity with QDMA came along. And at GON, which is Georgia Outdoor News, is known locally here as GON, um, it's a broad interest outdoor magazine. In other words, turkey hunting... Bass fishing, cat fishing, brim fishing, you know, dove hunting and deer hunting, whatever's going on out there at the time, we covered, we covered it. Uh, and I enjoy all of that as an outdoorsman, but for me personally, deer hunting has always been my passion and not just deer hunting, but deer management. Um, improving a deer population, improving its habitat. That was always really for me personally. My big thing. So when this opportunity came along with QDMA to produce their magazine and run their communications, you know, it was, as I often say, it was like the mothership calling me home. So, um, I mean, it's just <laughs> been, it was perfect, and it's been a great fit for me. I've enjoyed working with QDMA. Uh, it's a great group of folks with a great nonprofit mission. And uh, for me, you know, teaching hunters about um, biologically sound deer management and habitat management Uh, and scientifically sound techniques is just, uh, I love doing it. So teaching other folks and sharing that information with other folks is just uh, uh, a great
0: position for me to be in. Perfect. Now, Lindsay, this Habitat podcast that we put on goes hand-in-hand with just about everything that the QDMA is involved in. I've been a member for over a decade now, it's funny I hear you say you've been there 15 years. I've been a member of us as long as that. I've always been really uh, appreciative and interested in the goals. That's that's one thing I love about QDMA. You guys are always setting new goals and setting the bar higher. You want to tell us a little bit about the new five-year goals that you guys have and uh, how that's born?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that opportunity. Um, you know, a lot of people know QDMA, um, and, and we've been around 30 years now, founded in, in 1988 by Joe Hamilton. And a lot of folks know QUMA for some of the, our earlier work, or at least some of our longest running work, where we were the advocates for biologically sound deer population management, taking the right number of those when you needed to, to, to balance deer density with habitat, and protecting young bucks, understanding that if you wanted to see more rubs and scrapes and rut behaviors in the woods and also, you know, and see more mature bucks when you hunt, it comes from protecting yearling bucks and and, and beginning to choose to let some of those guys go. We were known for that uh, for a long time because for the longest time those were big issues in much of North America where deer harvests were heavy on yearling bucks. Much of the buck harvest each year in North America was made up of yearling bucks. And where very few people shot a doe, especially where areas where they really needed to. And so that was really kind of where Joe was coming from when he founded QDMA. That's what we're known for in a lot of ways. Um, we won't ever stop being about that. We won't ever stop advocating for wise management of a deer population and managing it to be in balance with its habitat and managing it to be socially balanced with the balanced numbers of bucks out there, with mixed numbers of bucks of different ages out there. That's when... You know, a a deer population functions um, at 100% and where a deer hunter can enjoy the most exciting hunting that they can enjoy is when a deer population is managed that way. We'll never stop talking about that. But looking around over the last few years, what we realized was we were almost at a, um, I don't want to say mission accomplished, but we had come a long way in in that area. The early bird harvest is now, you know, nationwide, we're down. Uh, nearly to 30% yearlings in the buck harvest annually, which is, um, you know, a good number. Maybe a good sustainable place to be. Uh, hunters are educated. Hunters know when to take the take does. Uh, that's that's something hunters do now in most areas. Uh, so while that mission goes on, we kind of felt like maybe we should look at other things we could focus on. And at the time, some challenges were really emerging. And I know you guys can name them as quickly as I can. You know, chronic wasting disease is now kind of a dark shadow on the horizon. Um, Hunter numbers are uh, concerning. Uh, They are shrinking. Um, And there are habitat issues out there. Access is an issue. We've got a lot of issues right now that QDMA is pivoting to begin to put more of our time and effort into those things. And, Brian, you mentioned the five-year plan that we came out with last year. Uh, we are now a year into that and a little more. And that was designed to address some of these issues that I'm talking about. Um, we've got a number of areas in this five-year plan. Uh, and I can, if you want me to, I can list those out. Absolutely. Okay, well, it, it's basically, you know, in the area of, of protection for things like chronic wasting disease, we're upping the game on research and the amount of money that QDMA funnels into deer research and into advocacy. Kip Adams, who's our conservation director, spends a lot of his time every year on advocacy, which is uh, following legislation and policy matters around the country that deal with deer and making sure that um, these policies and and bills and legislation are good for deer and good for deer hunters and also fighting against uh, things that are not good for deer. So in the protection area, we really stepped our game up there. Uh, in conservation, we want to see cooperatives, QDM cooperatives, really expand. Uh, we set a five-year goal uh, of reaching, I believe it's 35 million acres nationally in QDM cooperatives. Uh, As you know, these are are informal agreements between landowners simply to work together toward uh, habitat and and deer population goals. There's no rules. There's no requirements. It's not a legal thing. This is just neighbor-to-neighbor shaking hand across the fence and saying, hey, let's both agree to protect yearling bucks. uh, Let's both both agree to increase uh, early successional habitat and things like that. So we want to see. 35 million acres at the end of these five years in CUNY and cooperatives, and we're we're tracking that. Um, In terms of hunting access, you know, a lot of people talk about hunting access and say, well, we need more public land. Uh, We would agree with that, but we also think what we need to do is look at a lot of the public land we already have and ask the question about whether it is currently being managed uh, well enough to provide good recreation. You know, we've got a lot of acres of public land State and federal land as well that are poorly or poorly managed or inadequately managed um, to the point that those acres are not optimized for producing high quality deer populations and deer hunting. And so, hmm. if you can maximize the habitat on public land you already own, I think we've got an opportunity to to increase access, increase hunting opportunities and deer populations on public land we already own. and that's So that's what we're focusing on with our branches, uh, is working with our QDMA uh, volunteer branches, getting them involved at the local level on public lands to basically do the work on public lands that a lot of us do on our own private lands, going out there. Because let's be honest, in many cases, the mismanagement of public lands comes from budget issues, uh, yeah. lack of, of manpower, lack of time and money from the agencies right. that manage these places, uh, it's not, you know, necessarily folks choosing to mismanage these lands. It's, it's simply, um, a budget issue in many cases. So if our people will volunteer and go out there to improve these public lands, we'll be improving hunting access without having to buy more land. So we've got That's a great great goal in point. that area. Uh, we, we want to recruit hunters. Um, and there's a bunch of things, as you know, QDMA is doing in that area. Uh, all of our branches are doing youth hunts. And, and these days, we are also, just last in the last two years, we have really begun to focus on adult hunter recruitment. Um, you know, for years all of us have talked a lot about let's get the kids involved. But what we're realizing now is, uh, you know, think about this. If you take a uh, 12-year-old kid hunting this weekend and you spend some time, you teach them to hunt, teach them to shoot and all of that, that's a good thing. That's great, particularly for a kid who does not have someone to take them. Uh, but next week, next month, next year, that kid can't buy his own gun, drive himself to the woods or herself to the woods, take themselves hunting. They can't immediately go out and do this on their own. But if you take an adult who'd like to learn to hunt, they've got disposable income. They've got a driver's license. Um, they've got you know the freedom to make a decision next week about where they go. And not only that, can they more quickly become an independent hunter, independent from you, the mentor, but then they can take other people. And we're seeing that in our program that we called Field to Fork that we just piloted in Georgia two years ago. We have spun that off into nine additional new states this year through our QDMA branches, and it's been a huge success. What we're finding is there are a lot of adults out there who are interested in learning to hunt, particularly when you approach them from the standpoint of teaching them to be uh, self, uh, self-sustainable and, and providing themselves with their own food. Uh, so we're, we're using that angle to reach out to adults, and we're having a lot of success with it, and that, that program is, is really, really exciting. So that's in the recruitment area. We want to mentor uh, 200,000 new hunters each year through QDMA members, QDMA branches, and all of our national programs uh, the first year. Again, check that box. We checked that box. We're on track to meet our five-year goals. Uh, we've got other goals about sharing venison. Uh, other goals about educating hunters. You know, on the sharing venison thing, we feel like, uh, and, and when I say sharing, we do want to do the donation deal where, where we are helping feed needy families with our venison. But then we have a separate area where we're encouraging our, our members to share their venison with people who don't necessarily need the venison, your neighbor, uh, family members, friends, whoever, who necessarily may not hunt. Uh, but by sharing that venison with them is kind of what has been referred to, I believe it's uh, Stephen Renella who referred to it as venison diplomacy. Uh, but it is yes, introducing, yes. is that right? Yeah. So it's introducing new hunter or, or non-hunters to the benefits of venison and and, and exposing them kind of to the, Um, you know, to hunting in a way that they might not have been exposed to it before. And that creates opportunities for us to maintain the outstanding support hunters enjoy among uh, the non-hunting American public right now. So I'm I'm, kind of running through these, but we are, you know, after year one, uh, you can get more information on this at QMA website, but after year one we have uh, checked off many of the boxes of our goals and are on track. Uh, for five years to reach a lot of these, and but to summarize, it is like I said, looking out there at a lot of these dark clouds on the on the horizon for whitetails, and steering our efforts and our time, and our members' efforts uh, and their concerns toward some of these areas, so that we can resolve a lot of these issues.
0: That's excellent to hear about all the programs you got going on outside of just private land ownership, because that's one thing that I get once in a while from some friends like yourself, Lindsay, and Jared and I, we're, we're blessed enough to have our own land that we can hunt on and manage, but a lot of guys are still working towards that dream, and I, I get a lot of uh, questions about the QDMA, and well, what would it benefit me to join that, and it's it's great to hear that you've got a lot going on there for guys that don't have their own property yet, and I think that plan of having some habitat improvements on the public lands is just fantastic. That's that's gonna help everybody out. It's gonna bring the whole circle around for the people we're trying to recruit, the kids, the adults, and we'll have some great habitat on public land also.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think,
0: you know, yeah, we're
1: uh well aware that we are somewhat saddled with some some misconceptions out there about who we are and what we do. And I can just, you know, when someone tells me what QDMA is about, you know that they've never really looked at who we are a lot of times because they've got us wrong. You will often hear some folks say, well, QDMA, that's just for big landowners or private landowners. And clearly, they haven't been to the website. They haven't talked to our members. They haven't examined what we do and what we teach. And if they'll just do that, they'll just go to the QDMA website and look at everything we're doing. um, They'll find that Uh, You know, not only are we always going to be about the education and helping any hunter, whether they hunt public land, private land, learn more about deer biology and about this animal that we all love to hunt, learn how to hunt them more effectively, Um, all of these things that that are of interest to any deer hunter. But beyond that, we're taking that as a nonprofit. We're taking that membership money, and we are putting it into things in uh, efforts and programs that any hunter would get behind, whether it's hunter recruitment or research to help us resolve the chronic wasting disease problem um, or anything like that, that that helps us preserve our hunting heritage for the future. What deer hunter isn't behind that? So I think any deer hunter that looks at what we do will feel confident in giving us their money for that membership, knowing that, that this is what their money
0: supports. Now, you mentioned uh, the Field to Fork program. Could you explain that a little bit better for our listeners?
1: Yeah, it is really, really cool. Um, Hank Forrester, who is our Hunting Heritage Programs Manager, uh, he and uh, Charles Evans, who is the R3 coordinator here in Georgia. R3 is uh, Recruit, Retain, and Reactivate. It's a, it's a national effort among many states to look at the hunter number problem. Well, Charles and, and Hank had an idea. To uh, hit here in Athens, Georgia, where Cutie Mae's National Headquarters was, to go to the Athens Farmers Market here in Athens, Georgia, and set up a booth at the Farmers Market on Saturday and offer venison samples to anyone who walked by. That's awesome. And so them, and that's what they did. They grilled some backstrap. They had some some sauces to dip in. They carried it down to the to the. Farmers market set up a booth and simply asked people, "Would you like to try venison?" And wow. you know they were a little concerned what the response might be, um, and, and whether uh, and you know somebody might throw tomatoes at them or what. They didn't know. The the response was <laughs> incredibly positive and extremely overwhelming. Almost everyone stopped and wanted to try it. And what Hank and Charles did then was engage them in a conversation to say, um, "You know, you could acquire." free-range, organic, healthy, natural, low-fat, high-protein venison like this yourself by hunting. Would you care to learn? And the plan was to sign people up for a program they had already laid in place for that first year to train them, teach them, put a crossbow in their hand, get them in the woods, and mentor them one-on-one and take them hunting. The first year, they were prepared to take on, I think, 10 people, and after a day at the farmer's market, they had a waiting list.
0: Wow. So uh,
1: this is what they found, and, and in the spin-offs, we did it for two years in Georgia. This is the third year in Georgia, and this year in our third year, through branches around other states, we have spun it off into other states, New Hampshire, New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, Michigan, Texas, Iowa. They, these states, QDMA members in these states have spun off field before uh, this year, and it's the same approach. And what they're finding is you go to these farmer's markets, you offer venison, You talk to people about the benefits of providing yourself your own venison, and a large percentage of these folks are immediately interested in in learning more. Sign me up. And then you go through a a program that we've developed where we teach them about hunting, about deer, uh, about the animal, and about conservation issues in North America. Uh, We pair them up, each of them, with a mentor, a qualified mentor uh, who works with that person. Uh, Of course, Through the training process, there are venison dinners where everyone gathers for the learning and eats venison. So it's a, you know, it is a celebration of uh, the sustainability of and and, uh, self-reliance of providing your own venison. And then in the end, you know, by the time the program is through, deer season's arrived, folks fan out into the woods and go hunting, and and a lot of these folks end up getting their first deer. Going back to what I said earlier about adult hunter recruitment, what we have seen firsthand is that a lot of these folks, there are some actually some pretty incredible stories, a lot of these folks uh, within the same season that they kill their first deer go on to hunt on their own and kill additional deer or take additional people hunting with them and so it has, the spinoff is just incredible. These folks are going and buying guns and bows, uh, they are leasing hunting land. You know, it it is instantly creating new hunters, and it's just that's fantastic. It's, just, it's wild to see the results, and, and and very very
0: exciting to be a part of it.
2: That's excellent.
0: That's excellent. Yeah, it's good to hear that uh, our membership fees are going to so much more than sometimes what you sit, see in, at the face value of it. Like Jared mentioned, the outstanding magazine. That's one thing I tell guys. I said you can't even get a decent hunting magazine subscription for the cost of a QDMA membership, and their magazine is top-notch. And then you just start listing the rest of it, which we all know of. But uh, if you just want to run down the membership costs and what that all entails and what it breaks down for people so they have a better understanding, that'd be great. Yeah, the annual
1: membership is $35, and that gets you six issues of the magazine. You get... uh a package of uh, benefits. I think there's a QDMA logo grunt call and a ball cap and uh, some other gear. Uh, and you can go to the website and click join to see all the benefits. Uh, we have some tiers, like you can do a three-year membership that saves you some money and gets you some more goodies uh, and some other levels like that. Uh, but but that's it, 35 bucks a year. Gets you the magazine uh, and a lot of benefits. And, you know, that you're giving to an organization that uh, is doing the things we're doing. I'll throw this in there, too. You'll find, and you can go to this website. It's called Charity Navigator. Charity Navigator is an independent organization that evaluates uh, nonprofits like us. And, uh, you know, they're sort of like the... Uh, uh, like the Better Business Bureau, who you can go and check out businesses on there, and find sure. some some uh, you know independent information about businesses and how qualified they are, or, uh, reliable they are. You can go to Charity Navigator and find out about your favorite nonprofit and how efficient they are in using your money, and that's what they evaluate: is does a nonprofit use your money efficiently, effectively, and do they put it toward what they said they're going to put it toward? And two years in a row. QDMA has earned a four-star rating from Charity Navigator. That's their highest rating. And, Congratulations, uh, that's excellent. Thank you. It is—it's uh, a tough thing to win that two years in a row, but QDMA has, and uh, you know we're proud of that. And I, I would—I would point that out to anyone that's listening as proof of the fact that your money that comes to QDMA is used efficiently. Uh, we put almost ninety percent. Of all of every dollar we have back into yeah. our programs, back into education, back into these missions, uh, th- these mission programs that I've been talking about, five-year goals. Ninety uh, percent of our money that comes in goes back out into what we into our mission. Uh, so you can rest assured knowing giving to us is a safe bet. And of course, we encourage donations. You don't have to stop at the thirty-five bucks. We're a, we're a nonprofit. Uh, we're a five hundred one c three, so any dollar you give us can be tax deductible. Uh, so, you know, look at what we do. Think about supporting us.
2: Now that all sounds right. great, Lindsay. I um, attended a QGMA leadership uh, workshop this summer with uh, a lot of the branch leaders in Michigan and um, Josh Hilliard, the Great Lakes director, and yeah. uh, really got I got to meet Matt Ross and all those guys, and really, you know. The stuff you're saying is the stuff that was echoed that day, and you can see it when these branch leaders come out and tell these stories like you're telling. This stuff really is being, uh, you know, pushed on the pipes out to to all the different branches and into different parts of of our state and and all the other states. But it's just it's very cool to see this stuff actually happening and and, and it's uh, working and, it, and it's working, and it, you guys are just one of the if not the best, uh, organization that fights for for our deer hunting and, and the heritage and the, the habitat. I, I love it. Um, I thank you for uh, going through all the goals and, and everything there. That was awesome.
1: Thank you, and I appreciate that, Jared. And, and its bottom line is, guys, down at the QTMA headquarters, we're, we're all deer hunters, um, and – we all sit around. We talk deer hunting just like any other group of deer hunters. But we also talk about the things that worry us, uh, chronic wasting disease, hunter numbers, uh, things like that. All of those things, you know, worry us just like they do any other deer hunter. And so we, at the same time, sit there and go, what can we do about it? That's what QDMA has always been about is trying to make deer hunting better for all deer hunters and to ensure that it's here for your kids, my kids, everybody's kids and grandkids, the next generation that we leave that heritage here. So uh, it, it's something we think about every day when we walk in the door at the headquarters.
2: No, that's perfect. And I was going to talk about some Habitat stuff next, but since you brought it up, why don't we talk about CWD real quick? I know it's not a real okay. quick subject, but um, what you know, where, where are you guys at on – on CWD right now. I know in Michigan we just found two new counties that that it was in that were not um that were not they were classified as kind of the a bordering county in the past, but now now we found uh, CWD in two more counties here in Michigan. What are you guys coming across uh, at this point in time, and what are your thoughts on CWD?
1: Well, it's a very serious issue. Uh, you will hear some debate out there among some folks that oh this is something we don't need to worry about or um, it's not a big deal nature will take care of itself um, disregard all that this is a serious issue that we have to uh, deal with um, and and we can go into the reasons for why it's serious and, and how the disease works but I think most everybody knows the gist of it, it's fatal, it is always fatal to any deer that gets it, no deer survives this um, and it is uh, there's no cure, there's no vaccine, and it is much like, uh, it's almost like radioactivity. Once this prion that causes CWD, it's not a bacteria or a virus or anything like that, it is a, it's called a prion protein, once this prion is there in an area, it can live in the environment outside the deer, and it's very difficult to get rid of. You literally can't burn it. Uh, you can't, you know, it has to be incinerated at very high temperatures to get rid of it. It's very, uh, persistent out there, and when deer contact it, you know, they can become ill, and it spreads quickly from deer to deer. So this is a, it's a big issue. Uh, it is something we've got to deal with. Now, the thing that we're trying to, to look at this right now is, and I'll just tell you, me personally, I'm still positive about CWD because just like you said, yeah, two new counties in Michigan. I believe they were already in a management zone because they were near a positive county. Correct. They didn't have That's right. So they didn't have CWD in those counties. Well, now they do. So that zone is kind of expanded.
3: Correct. So uh,
1: we've been watching this. We know the states that have it and the counties that have it, but in the big picture, what we have to remember is, um, out of all the counties in the in North America that have a deer or elk species in it, that could Carry CWD. Um, 8% of the counties have CWD in it. So, the way I look at that is 92% of counties in North America, of, in the United States, that could have CWD don't have it. And that is what we have to look at right now. If this is a fight, and it is, it's a fight, the fight is for all deer hunters to contain this thing to those 8% of the counties and hold that line. Keep it there long enough for the scientists and the researchers who are working on solutions to find the solution. Mm. Um, it, is, it is not going to be found tomorrow or next week or next month or next year probably, but they are working on it. Um, they are advancing knowledge that's going to help hopefully one day find a vaccine and some way to deal with this. We don't know what it is yet, but that's what we have to do. We have to buy time. And to buy time, we have got to hold it in the counties where it's located, uh, and prevent it from spreading. Because essentially, once we figure out the solution, if we figure that out, the, you know, we want to keep this thing contained to the fewest areas possible so that right. we've kind of got to do as, as little mop up as possible when we can figure out how to fix it. Uh, and that's the fight right now. So what QDMA has been doing, uh, just within the light, just, uh, just prior to this deer season, we started a new campaign under the hashtag FightCWD. And what it is, it's simply letting hunters know, bullet point by bullet point, all the things that each individual deer hunter, you, me, all of us, whether we live in a CWD county, hunt in a CWD county, or don't live or hunt in a CWD county, whether it's near us or far away from us, every single one of us can be doing things to help in that battle to to hold CWD uh, hold the line, and keep it from spreading. And that's what we're doing right now is trying to to get the word out about that. Here's what you all can be doing.
2: I like that. I'm going to have to um, grab that from you or find that online and share that some more. I, um, I think that's important, especially for people who aren't in the zone technically. Like myself, I'm not in it. My hunting property is in one of the counties that they did find it in, so in the, one of the core counties. And then I live outside, so i have to i have to uh you know be refreshed on on the rules and make sure I know what i'm doing um and but everybody around me really doesn't because they just hunt locally so it kind of would be nice to share some of that information to other people to make sure okay, it doesn't really affect you today, but you can at least be helping and and keep that eight percent down which is which is very important um What would you say to certain myths, or maybe not, certain comments that are like, "CWD has has always been here, we're just now seeing it. Or, uh, you know, I'm just going to throw the deer in the back of my truck and cut it off in my garage. I'm not dealing with all this crap. What, What would you say to something like that?
1: Uh well so the thing about C W D has always been here um uh, no. You know, it was first found in the nineteen sixties, I believe, in uh Wyoming, Colorado area was where they first documented it in some research facilities. You know, yeah, it's a mystery where it came from from there. It's related to some other diseases that have been known for a long time in sheep and even some in humans. You know, it's a, it's a it's a brain uh syndrome that uh we're familiar with. How it got to Deer and elk species in the western states, yeah, that's a mystery. But when you look at the pattern and the way it has spread across the country since then um, and jumped eastward, jumped into Wisconsin and across the Mississippi River, and I believe it was 2001 or two, and then, you know, starting to pop up in more and more areas, Michigan, um, Pennsylvania, when you look at the way it's spreading, no, this is spreading. This is spreading through two ways, people moving live deer around and people moving parts of dead, sick deer around
3: right. are the two
1: primary ways that it moves. And it is, uh, you know, you'll hear some people say, well, it's been here all along. Um, it's only because we're testing that we're finding. I'm sorry, that's not that's not true. When you look at the way uh, it was discovered in Wisconsin and the way the prevalent, prevalent, re- prevalence rate among deer in certain areas has skyrocketed over the years since, it's very clear that what happens is this stuff, unless, uh, you know, in, it's being handled um, extreme, in an extreme manner, this stuff spreads quickly within a deer population, and soon, you know, you are, are the uh, deer begin to, the survival rate of deer begins to plummet. Hunters begin to encounter sick deer. Uh, you begin to see it. So this isn't something that has been around and out there for a long time. Or we'd have known about it. People would have been finding sick deer. They'd have been seeing these things that happen, uh, you know, when you have this disease in a certain area. So that's just completely false. Um but then to your other thing about, you know, well, this is confusing and these regulations are a pain in my tail and I'm not going to mess with it. I'm just going to do my deer like I've always wanted to and, uh, get it in the garage and throw the carcass out in the backyard. You know, that is, um and you're talking about, let's say, someone like me who lives in Georgia, let's say I drive up to uh, take a road trip up to Wisconsin or Michigan or, uh, you know, one of these states uh, that's got it to go on an outfitted hunt or, or whatever and kill a deer and, you know, it's only so many hours home and I throw the carcass in the back of the truck and head home. Well, the way this works, um, if that's a sick deer with CWD, uh, parts of that deer, particularly the spine and the brain, uh, in certain organs, those prions are concentrated in those areas. If I throw that carcass out in my backyard or in the woods in Georgia, I have now created a little hot spot there for CWD. And this stuff persists in the soil. Uh, if a coyote comes along and feeds on that carcass, uh, the prions are going to pass through that coyote and come out in the, in the scat uh, and mm-hmm. still be viable. And they're going to be in the environment. They can be taken up by plants. If deer eat those plants, they can become sick. If they encounter dirt or in, in any way uh, encounter these prions, they can become sick. So that's a great way to move CWD into a new area that didn't have it. And you know, Jared, from now having to deal with this where you hunt, you know about the pain in the tail regulations, uh, the privileges you lose. You can't bait uh, anymore. No you, more can't, bait. you can't You can't put out minerals uh, in some states, they don't necessarily mm-hmm. use deer, deer urine anymore. Um, you can't, uh, you know, truck deer out of your county, any, out of certain zones anymore. So if your favorite tax right. is now two counties away, you can't use your favorite taxes anymore without, you know, boning everything out and taping it out yourself. There are a lot of headache regulations. And don't get me wrong, these are necessary. These For are sure. necessary in these areas, the state agencies are doing the best they can and the best they know how to deal with a very bad situation. So I'm not saying these regulations shouldn't be there. They should be. But they are a pain in your tail. Uh, nobody wants this thing if they don't have it. And, you know, I'm praying uh, for my state, my home state of Georgia, that we never get it. I'm praying for every state and every county in this nation that doesn't have it, that they don't get it. And my heart breaks for every deer hunter who is dealing with it uh, because it's not a good thing. but to dismiss it and say, this is not a big deal. It doesn't matter if I, you know, haul some deer somewhere and throw it out in the woods. That's the wrong thing. That's that's the number one way that, that the average deer hunter can help spread this uh, to new areas and that's what we've got to help stop.
0: Sure. And the temporary inconvenience is definitely much better than the long term effects. Like I'm happy to see even my home state of Pennsylvania Uh, They've set up regulations where I can't bring in deer from other states, and my farm's in Ohio. I happen to live on the border. So when I take a deer in Ohio now, I have to find a certain place or a certain way to take care of it. And, yeah, it might be a little inconvenient, but the the, uh, alternative is is a disaster, and we're all going to have to buckle down and just try to figure this thing out.
1: Yeah, everybody's got to do their part. I mean, the very first thing is, uh, for any hunter, find out. Do you hunt in a CWD zone? Do you even know? Most of us, I think, know if we live in one or, or hunt right near our home in one. But a lot of hunters hunt out of state every year uh, and travel. You know, take road trips, and I think many of those folks uh, may be going into areas and don't know one way or the other whether they're going to a CWD zone. That's the first thing. Wherever you're going hunting, find out if it's a CWD zone, and if it is. Follow the rules and regulations. Get on board with the deal and, and do what you need to do. Don't haul carcasses out of CWD zones is a, is, is a big one. So, right. you know, educate yourself. Find out if you're in one of these areas and, and do what the state agencies ask you to do. These rules and regulations are intended to help stop the spread and help control it in these areas. Help, help the agency learn. Where the disease is located within those counties, and so that they can direct their best management efforts towards slowing the spread of it. Uh, it's we've all got to pitch in.
0: Definitely, definitely. And now that we've uh, covered the issues and what we all need to do, what is there a nationwide agency that's leading the research? Uh, we have somebody that's spearheading this that we're all working together with, or where do we go from here?
1: Yeah, there's a, a number of groups. Working on this, QDMA of course is working on this in a big way. But uh, uh, you know, there are groups like the CWD Alliance, uh, and we are QDMA is a member of that. We were uh, we helped form that group, the CWD Alliance, which is a you know working group of other nonprofits like ours, uh, and they put out a, a lot of good information. That's a good website to go to to get CWD information. Okay, um, you know the the U.S. Geological Survey. The National, they have the National Wildlife Health Center uh, they put out a lot of good information and, and are, are working on a lot of helping direct a lot of the research into this um, you know many of the state agencies uh, that are that, that have this in their states um, have a lot you know Michigan has uh, a good bit of uh, wildlife health research going on there and some, some really outstanding experts uh, who are working on this and, and helping educate hunters so yeah there's uh, your state wildlife agency is the number one group to get to get to know first. And I would encourage all hunters. You know, if you don't follow your state agency on social media, do that. If you don't get their email newsletter, sign up for it and start getting that. And if you hunt in another state you don't live in, do the same thing with that state agencies. Uh, follow sure. their social media and sign up for their email newsletter because you can stay abreast of what these agencies are doing and learning and asking you to do to help uh, on this issue.
2: No, very nice. That was that was great. I'm glad we hit that subject. Um I just yeah, I hope we can can rein it in here a little bit. It seems to be spreading or has spread and we're finding it uh at a at a very scary rate here in Michigan. So um I'm not sure if there's anything else you guys want to cover on C W D at the moment before we move on to the habitat related stuff.
0: I'm good.
2: All right. Now, the Habitat Podcast, we uh, are going to get to the the dessert of the conversation here. <laughs> um, like you said, Lindsay, we all love deer, and we all just like talking about deer, and it's a big part of our lives and, and what we care about. Um, one thing I like getting from the KDMA are the emails. I get a, I think I've signed up for the membership a couple different times, so I get like three of the same email, so I'm, I make sure not to miss it. Um, Now, in these email blasts, you have different subjects that you cover, habitat-related, and a lot of them seem to be stemming from your uh, Proving Grounds, what I think you guys call it down there in in Georgia. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about the Proving Grounds, what you guys do there? I know we've we've even had a couple Michigan boys down there. Uh, Jake Elinger, who's been on the podcast a couple times, he's been down there, I think, too. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, Uh, that's the national headquarters site here in Athens, Georgia. Uh, We were on uh, 23 acres until last year um, uh, when we had a gentleman walk in the door and give us 130 acres more to go with it Wow! Uh, right next door. So we are now on 150 acres right on the outskirts of Athens, Georgia, Uh, kind of a, you know, borderline suburban area but it's wooded and got a lot of deer so it's a it's a great uh, place for us to do uh, demonstrations on deer habitat and it's the nice thing is particularly the 130 acres we just got uh, it's been left alone for a long time and as you guys know when you leave deer habitat alone and don't mess with it don't maintain it you know trees grow shade fills in and your understory fades away and gradually, you know, time is not good to deer habitat. So it's a, it's a fixer upper. And we've got a lot of work to do. And so we're going to be using that to do some demonstrations of all kinds of things. Food plots and timber stand improvement, uh, invasive species control. We've got a lot of stuff we can do here. Uh, we've been working on the 23 acres over the years. And you did, yeah, you were right that, uh, we had the, um, National Convention a couple of years ago here in Athens and some of the Michigan wrecking crew came down and <laughs> did did uh, some of their uh, habitat work and hinge cutting and Torana zones and and spoke about that and uh, so uh, yeah that was a good time but but yeah we do um, and the nice thing about it is we're um, this isn't high dollar habitat improvement we are doing this on a very tight budget and on it literally, On our own time, like when uh, things slow down and I don't have a magazine deadline on me, I might, you know, take an hour or two and step outside and and work on the food plots or whatever. So uh, we're all working and pitching in on this and uh, it's not big budget stuff. We are having to do this, you know, by hand with chainsaws and and four wheelers and tools that most deer hunters have at their disposal. Uh, So it is an opportunity for us to test and teach about habitat improvement methods that don't cost a lot of money.
2: Yeah, now, I think I saw maybe one of your articles or one of your posts about, it was a a no-till where you guys did a, you you sprayed an area that was kind of overgrown, and then you had done uh, a broadcast, and I think you documented the whole thing. Was that also on that Proving Ground, and and what other types of low-budget, normal stuff that we could be doing do you guys do out there that that are maybe some of your favorites?
1: Yeah, on the food plot deal, we really have gone toward a no-till approach on all of our food plots there at the headquarters. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, when I say no-till, you know, a lot of people think of a no-till grain drill, um, which is a big, you know, piece of farm equipment that certainly works great for no-till planting but it's very expensive, um, and you're talking about several thousand dollars, and you got to have a tractor to pull it. When I say no-till from, from what I'm talking about, uh, we're talking about, yeah, not tilling a food plot area, basically using uh, Roundup uh, to kill the vegetation that is in place there, leaving the vegetation in place and mowing it kind of as a mulch layer, and then broadcasting seed into that mulch layer, and timing that with a good rain to basically plant the seed for you, and it works extremely well. And oh, yeah. you will hear this uh, a lot, you know, today in the agricultural community, you've got a lot of advocates for organic farming methods and no-till methods and cover crops and other methods that conserve soil, but also that uh build soil the way it's supposed to be built, which is from the top down. And that's something I've learned from a lot of the agronomy experts is, you know, when we till, when we disc and turn dirt over, you're actually disrupting the the best way to build your soil. The best wa- soil is built from the top down. You have the leaf litter and the mulch layer builds up on top. It begins to break down and rot and weather into smaller particles that filter down into the dirt. And this is where you get the layering and you get the healthy soil that produces the nutrients that plants grow on. So when we disc, we're disrupting that. And what we're trying to do is basically go with nature on this and, and let the vegetation and the mulch stay on top, plant the seeds into that. You know, uh, it even works, I found, with big seeds, uh, like some of your warm season stuff, like soybeans uh, and even uh, oats and wheat, some of the bigger cereal grain seeds, um casting them onto the surface and when you get that rain to settle it into the mulch layer you'll get good germination so yeah uh sure. yeah yeah that's that's uh, we pretty much are doing all of our food plots now with that method
2: oh wow okay yeah i um i tried that this year after hearing about it from a friend of mine phil and i tell you what it worked flawlessly uh i i used a, a brassica mix and I could not believe how, how good it worked. I mean, the amount of time saved, the soil health, um, the very little amount of equipment.
1: Um, yeah.
3: Yeah, it was,
2: hey, it was You don't awesome.
1: need to disc. You're saving the, on gas money and time. Um, you know, that, that mulch layer, the, the vegetation that you're leaving in place on the surface Helps conserve soil moisture. Hold, you know, when you disc and turn dirt over and you got that nice, pretty seed bed. Yeah, it's pretty, and, and a farmer loves to see that. Um, <laughs> me too. <but>, yeah, yeah.
2: Guilty. <laughs> yeah.
1: Hey, yeah, me too. It's, it's I mean,
2: pretty, it does look really good. It does.
1: <laughs> it does. It does look good. But that is just you're just turning loose all your soil moisture and letting it evaporate sure, into sure. the into the air. And if uh, if you got a dry summer, you know, or a dry fall, I mean, that's that's hurting you. Um, not to mention, you know, like I said, the fact that you've you've basically broken up and stopped the process of organic material breaking down in the soil that helps you with nutrients, which cuts down on your fertilizer bill. So, yeah, it's just good all the way around.
2: Very cool. Um, What else have you done on the Proving Grounds, or maybe maybe your own property, uh, that you say one of your favorite projects to work on throughout the year that maybe uh, some of us should pay more attention to?
1: Well, I think just across the board, the one thing we need to do at QDMA May headquarters, and it's something that every deer hunter should look at uh, on the land they hunt, is simply increase uh, early successional cover and forage. That's simply the grasses and forbs and plants that come up when you put sunlight on the ground. Um, when you you know when you got a shady mature forest, there's nothing growing under there, and you know people just have to remember 365 days a year. A deer lives in a zone that goes from your boots up to about your chin. Uh, and that's where they live. And everything they eat and hide in is in that zone. And when you can walk through a forest and there's nothing growing in that zone, you got a problem. Now it's fine to have, uh, a few areas of open hardwoods that we all love to see and it's pretty and sure we all love to hunt somewhere where you can see deer a long way, but you really have got to have a a mix and a blend of some other areas that are thick and not fun to walk through because that's what deer love. They eat that. They live in it. Um, And so any technique you can do that increases that, that removes, for example, trees that are not valuable to you from a timber standpoint, trees that don't produce mass, trees that from a wildlife and timber standpoint you really don't need, remove them uh and put that sunlight on the ground and grow some understory. And we know all the techniques you can for doing that. Uh hinge cutting of course is one, but then another would be uh hack and squirt using herbicides, which is faster. You simply taking a machete and chopping the tree bark and injecting an herbicide in that and killing the tree standing. Uh you can girdle and squirt. Uh or you can simply just cut the tree down. Um so there's, there's that. We are doing a lot of that on the headquarters property and, and got a lot ahead of us. We did a bunch this summer at one of our work days where we had some volunteers come out and help us, uh, going through and using a chainsaw to girdle large trees. And, and in this area, particularly sweet gum trees, it's going to vary area to area to area, what tree we're talking about here. But in our area, sweet gums are kind of a, the low value, worthless tree that takes over everything if you let it. Um, it's a native tree. But it just doesn't do anything for wildlife, and it is the first tree to pop up any time you disturb the ground. So we spend a lot mm-hmm. of time killing sweet gum, and some of these are big. Some of these on this property have been there a long time, and we're taking a chainsaw, quickly girdling, uh, cutting a quick girdle around the bark and spraying herbicide in that, and now you've got a dead tree. It just doesn't know it yet. So, you know, we're doing a lot of that, um, and then... The other thing we're going to try to do this winter for the first time on QDMA headquarters is some prescribed fire. We're in an area where, you know, we've got – we're a half mile from gas stations and a Sam's Club and a shopping mall and stuff like that. So (laughs) we are, you know, right on the edge of urban Athens, Georgia. So we can't – you know, fire is – we may actually have to have the uh, fire department out there with us, the county fire department, just to have them standing by before they let us burn in this county. But we're going to try to do it. Um this is a problem with areas like this where it's gotten difficult for many hunters to do prescribed fire but it's a great tool my family's land in South Georgia fire is something we use regularly on a rotation you know we're trying to hit every piece of woods we can on a rotation every 3 to 5 years roughly you want to run some fire through there and that is a great tool for uh setting back that forest succession, keeping it in a stage beneath, you know, and I'm not talking about you still got mature trees there. You're burning through a, a stand of mature trees, but you're doing it in a controlled, safe way so that it's not so hot that it damages those trees, but it consumes leaf litter and dead vegetation on the ground, disturbs the soil and, and activates the seed bed and generates a flush of brand new growth. So fire is a great and inexpensive tool that we love to use, and we're hoping to have some good demonstrations of that on the headquarters property this winter. We may actually even do another volunteer day in February uh, where we folks are welcome to come out, volunteer to help us spend a day or two. We will have Dr. Craig Harper from the University of Tennessee on site leading the habitat instruction, so it will literally be a learning and work opportunity at the same time. You'll come help us do this stuff on QDMA headquarters. While learning from the true uh, experts who are going to teach you how to do it, so we'll be doing some burning, we'll be doing some hacking and squirt and some some chainsaw work, and and uh, all kind of stuff.
2: Man, I wish I lived closer. That sounds amazing.
0: Let's um, do a field trip.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll pick yeah, you up on good. the way down, Brian.
3: <laughs>
1: but that's you know the big thing, Jared. I, I think that that most folks overlook. A lot of people think, a lot of deer hunters think, you bring up nutrition, and what do, you, what do they think first?
3: Food plots. Food plots. Yeah,
1: food plots. And and they're missing the boat by not thinking about early successional cover first because, A, it's cheaper to produce than an acre of food plots, a lot cheaper. You can produce uh, a whole lot more forage and volume of forage out there uh, than you can in a food plot in many areas. And the, the other thing, too, is that, that understory mix of native plants out there uh deer use that year round and that mix of stuff out there there's something going on each all year even in winter when they need uh browse which is woody twigs and branches of uh dormant uh shrubs and trees in that early successional and young forest they can reach that it's on the ground and that's important for deer in the winter particularly in the north so yeah it's it's uh You should really start a habitat program by looking at areas and ways to put sunlight on the ground and grow early successional cover, then do your food plots and let that be kind of the icing on the cake and and your hunting attraction uh, strategy.
2: No, I like that. And for someone who's trying to put some more early successional growth on the ground, what's a, a key factor when you're in the woods? to know that you have too much canopy? I mean, say you look up and it's it's not wide open. I mean, is that too much? Or, or when should you, you know, realize that, okay, even though my property was logged, I still have a bunch of trees in here that are still blocking off a lot of the canopy. How do you know what the right level is for that? And how long does it take that uh, early successful growth to start showing up?
1: Well, that depends. For example, in the south where we have a lot longer growing season, it, it uh, it happens faster. In the south, when you put sunlight on the ground, uh, whether you do that through thinning timber or, uh, you know, some TSI, chainsaw work, hinge cutting, whatever, when you put that sunlight on the ground, within about a, a year later, you're gonna note, uh, the broom sedge grass and, and the forbs and, and, and plants that have come in and filled in in there. I understand, of course, that where you are in Michigan, you guys have a lot shorter growing season, so it's going to take more time. Uh, it doesn't happen as fast. But, um, you know, looking around your hunting area, some people even have suggested in the past, take a take a tennis ball with you in your pocket and walk around and stop at some point in your hunting area and throw the tennis ball. And when it lands, if you can still see it, you know, that's not a great area for deer. It's kind of like, wow. you know, like a, like I said before, you want to be thinking about that zone from your neck down. And if you're getting scratched by briars and hung up in vines, that's good. <laughs> but if you're walking through a park-like area where you could have a nice picnic and throw the frisbee with a buddy uh, and see for days under there and shoot a deer 100 yards away, that's not good. Um, now, again, some of that is fine, but it's the mix. You want to look at your whole property, and, and an aerial view is good. And think about percentages uh, the more the higher the percentage of your property you can put in early successional uh, cover and put uh, sunlight on the ground the better but it doesn't have to be a hundred percent the more the better I guess is what okay. I would say and the other thing to remember too is it's it's um it doesn't have to be in a block that you measure in acres uh, if you walk into You've seen this before when you get, say, a natural death of a tree. A tree falls, it's hit by lightning or whatever, and that opens up a spot of sunlight in the forest. What happens there? You get grasses and vines and, and tree seedlings and saplings trying to fill that hole. Well, you can do that anywhere. Uh Walking through your forest, if you find, and this is the thing you should know, before anyone ever does any hinge cutting or uh Hacking, squirt, or any other effort to try to kill a tree—if um, they can't identify the tree species, they shouldn't do it. Uh, you should be looking. That. Yep. Yeah, I mean, you need to be looking up at the tree species, identifying those, and looking for the species you don't need. And for example, the sweet gum I talked about in the south—that is a low-value timber, low value for wildlife, and very abundant. We don't need them. Well, every sweet gum could be removed, and that. Even if you just remove one tree, you have put sunlight on the ground right there in that one spot. You cut down two or three, there's a little spot, even if it's only the size of your bedroom, there's a little spot that's going to grow up in briars and grasses and other things that, you know, can hide a fawn or feed a deer. So it doesn't have to be measured in acres, and it doesn't have to be, you know, something that costs you a lot of money. You've got an hour to kill one afternoon with your chainsaw? You can go do this and make a difference over time. Um, so it's just uh it's just a question of increasing uh it can even be corners and edges of food plots that you don't plant uh leave those edges and let them grow it up in in some native grasses and and forbs, which uh you know is a is, is beneficial just like the crop in the field, but also kind of helps feather the edge of that plot uh and screen that plot, help deer feel more safe using it. so it doesn't have to be you know cutting down a tree to uh, create this cover that we're talking about, um, it can just be letting a, you know, I know a lot of people that have fields and what do they want to do with them every year? They want to jump on the tractor and go bush hog them, uh, and mow them because they feel like, well, mowing it, you know, it makes it look good. Leave it alone. Let it grow up um, and let it get thick. And then if it, if you start seeing, you know, it's a, everything's aging. The forest is always advancing. When you start seeing too many tree saplings going up in there and less grass and less forbs, then come through there with a fire or come through there with something that, you know, mowing or whatever that would set that back again. So you can just take an empty field and let it grow up and produce the stuff we're talking about. Many people, of course, with fields have got some kind of invasive pasture grass in there, uh, some kind of non-native fescue or something like that, uh, timothy or whatever that's been put out there in the past for cattle, And that stuff is tough to get rid of. You know, if you just let that sit, it's just going to be pasture. Uh, So that needs a little help. Sometimes you have to kill that with herbicides before the native seed bank can respond. But you don't have to plant anything. The seeds are there. Um, Now, the other issue, of course, is some of the seeds that are there are non-natives and invasives. Um, Things like multiflora rose and, you know, in the south we've got, you know, all kinds of stuff, kudzu and, and everything else. Um What's the and bush honeysuckle? I think is one that you guys have a big issue with up north. So and, uh, and there are, yeah, buckthorn, yeah, buckshorn, We could name a long list here. There's things in the seed uh-huh. bank that are going to come up that you don't want, and that's again just you know kind of the next step. Kill those things too, and um and get the native stuff coming in. So again, this doesn't. It, you don't have to necessarily cut down a tree to make this stuff that we're
0: talking about.
2: Oh, well said. That's great information. Yeah, well said.
0: for for our listeners, most guys are doing pretty small properties, and they don't have a endless checkbook. And that that's really helpful They know that guys can go out there and do a lot of this with just time and a chainsaw, and even yeah. just even maybe just a mower and a backpack sprayer. And they don't have to have the biggest farm equipment or the biggest area to do things. Right. Now, Lindsay, you mentioned your property in uh southern Georgia, the family property. Tell us a little bit about that. What's the layout and what was your approach when you started doing improvements there?
1: Yeah, Grace Acres is that's where I actually grew up. Uh my dad was a, a farmer, um grew tobacco and soybeans and corn when I was growing up. And then uh it's it's about five hundred and fifty acres. Uh, about half of it is swamp on Little Satilla Creek that floods regularly, so it's sort of we can't really, you know, you can't do food plots or anything like that down in the swamp. Um, but the high ground Dad used to farm, we have now, it's now a tree farm. Uh, in fact, we uh, we started filling in, uh, Dad started planting pines uh, in some of the edge areas, and eventually now, 15 years ago or 16 years ago, we converted all of the remaining Agricultural land to longleaf pine, and you may not be familiar with longleaf, but it is a the native pine in, in coastal regions of the southeast uh, that is less favored by the timber industry because it is slower growing. So it has faded out over the years, uh, but it is associated with a uh, habitat type that you know favors bobwhite quail and a lot of endangered species like gopher tortoises and things like that. So. There's an effort afoot to bring longleaf pine back, and it is a very good wildlife species because um, it is very fire tolerant, far more fire tolerant than loblolly pine, which is kind of the, the favored tree by the timber industry, uh, and you can burn it at a younger age. And it has a thinner canopy, so it allows more sunlight in. So it's a very good wildlife tree, and that was main, the main reason we planted it, uh, so we're managing for wildlife, uh, for longleaf pine, and, and it's kind of a tree that you can keep in a thin stand. You can burn it regularly, and it just has a great understory underneath. So, yeah, we spent a lot of time over the last few years uh increasing our understory, just like what I was talking about, because we had, you know, used to be mostly farmland. Um, now, we're in the coastal plain. This is very sandy soils. Uh This is relatively poor deer habitat. This is not an area where we're ever going to grow a booming and Crockett buck. Uh, and so for me as communications director for QDMA, it really is kind of the perfect uh, place for me to be because I've seen what we can do with QDM there uh, and improving the deer population, improving the habitat, and in a realistic setting. You know, this is not Iowa where I'm going to kill a 16170-class buck every year. Um, this is tough habitat for deer, and yet we've got some of the best hunting in the county. When you look at uh, the top ten bucks that were killed in the county, about half of them were killed on our farm or on our neighbor's land right next door.
3: No way. Um,
1: wow. Yeah. So, uh, so we've had very good success through QDM in producing some very good bucks for this area uh, that, that we hunt in. And we've done it with, like I said, um, fairly inexpensive techniques. We use a lot of fire. Uh, we thin the timber uh, to keep sunlight on the ground while still growing timber for the income. Because as, as anybody knows, you know to own land, whether you own uh, you know twenty acres to hunt deer on or two hundred or five hundred. Most of us need the income to support you know if you're going to run that property as a, as a recreation property and deer hunting property rather than a farm or some other you know profit venture, you've got to have some income to help you own the place to pay the taxes and, and and keep keep it up and do the maintenance and put things back into deer stands and food plots and the things you want to enjoy. Well for us that's timber. So by fending timber, we're growing timber and growing deer habitat. At the same time, so that's why timber management and fire are you know big tools for us. Uh, we do have some food plots, and those figure into kind of uh, winter deer food management and and hunting attraction and uh, and yes, yeah, red hunting and stuff like that. Uh, but I would say we spend by by and large far more acreage that we manage through uh, early successional habitat, timber management, and fire.
2: Man, that sounds awesome. Um that's pretty cool. You guys have brag and rice in the county down there too. Jeez.
1: Yeah, you know, and it is um it's been a a, a good lesson for us that a, a lot of people believe or have the misconception that oh, you know, you have to be in a great area to do QDM. Right. But to me what it's about it's it's not about growing the best bucks in the country. It's about growing the best deer in the best deer hunting, where you stand
3: oh, of course and, and where you are.
1: And so that's what we've shown is, you know, okay, I don't care, honestly, that I'll uh, never produce a 160 class there. I don't really don't. But we've killed a lot of four- and five-year-old bucks. That's what we're going for. And by doing that, by protecting yearling bucks and producing as many adult bucks as we can, by taking the right number of does so that all the deer out there have adequate nutrition, um, we have produced, yeah. The best deer in the county. We uh, uh, several years ago, I killed a buck that was at the time the number two in the county. He since bumped on down the line to number five. But um, there's a back wow. Georgia Outdoor News that I used to work for. The magazine, they're the ones that track these records of officially scored bucks and uh do it by county. It is a great resource uh, for any hunter. And if anybody in your state does this, it's a great um, you know measuring stick to use. Not just you know, don't look at what are the best deer in your state, and can you do that? What are the best deer in your county? And if you're producing, you know, bucks in the top ten in your county, uh, which everybody can do through QDM, that's a great achievement.
2: Very well said. How big did that buck go? Uh, that was number two, if you don't mind me asking. He
1: is, he he netted 139. That was how they, they placed these, or ranked right, these bucks, uh, G.O.N. does, by Nestor. Okay. He actually grossed he grossed 149, but he netted 139, and that was where he the you know the number one oh. buck in the county is 152 net. That's all time. So that kind of gives you uh, when I tell you that you know this is marginal deer habitat. This doesn't you know produce great deer. Uh, you know on a national perspective, that kind of tells you where you stand. I mean,
3: right. the
1: best the best counties in Georgia produce lots of 150 bucks, 150 class bucks every season. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, uh, like I said, a great example to hold up to all deer hunters to say, I don't care where you are, don't tell me you're in bad habitat. You can do this and you can have the best deer you've ever had.
2: No, I love it. Good point. That makes perfect sense. Um, Aaron, one more thing for you before I let you go. I want to be respectful of your time, Lindsay. Uh, but for all of our southern listeners down there, we have, a bunch of them, and they're always asking me to get some more stuff on. And I'd love to have you on again sometime because this is an amazing podcast. Um, what do you think? One of the the ticket things is on your family property down there, where you know it's marshal deer hunting, and you guys are killing some of the top bucks. What's one or, one or two quick key things that that guys in the south you know should should pay attention to that you that you've implemented that work?
1: On Habitat or herd management? Yep, sorry, Habitat.
2: I'm sorry, yep, Habitat related that, you know, they're they're property owners down there and uh, they're thinking, okay, well, these guys are up north. All I talk about is Midwest. Well, maybe there's something down south that uh, you're doing on your property that might be just uh, effective for down
3: there.
1: Yeah, I'd say um, sunlight and fire. And I know yeah, that's two. Cool. I didn't, you said, you asked for one. But, yeah, yeah, but, we actually already
2: covered it. So, I mean, it's, that's perfect.
1: But it, it those two, those two things go hand in hand. You know, fire sets back, like we talked about, it kind of, it's, it's a rewind for the habitat. You know, like I said before, time is not good to deer habitat. Time, uh, lowers the quality of deer habitat. And fire is a rewind button. It sets back succession and t- sets you back to that fresh, green, thick understory that deer love. But the key is, if you, you can burn safely in, let's say, mature hardwoods with a canopy, you can burn that and burn up those dead leaves. But if there's no sunlight on the ground, the understory can't respond. And so the two go hand in hand. Use fire, but make sure you do it in an area. Put some sunlight on the ground first. Have a timber thinning if you own the, t- the land and can sell the timber, or you know, go with a chainsaw, cut down those low-value trees we talked about, get them out of there, thin the trees. You know, you don't need white oaks are great, but you don't need every single white oak. If you've got three or four white oaks growing uh, all in a in one spot, cut down three of them and pick the best one and leave it to fill that space. Meanwhile, you put some sunlight on the ground. So this is what forest management is. So that's that's what I would say, Jared is awesome get the sunlight on the ground and then use fire to keep those areas in that early successional cover that deer love.
2: Oh, thank you for that. Thank you. Um,
1: Brian, anything else
2: on your end before we wrap
0: this up? No, that, that's excellent information. and I, I appreciate Lindsay's time and I got to tell you, if you guys ever get a chance to bump into him at a, uh, a sportsman show or uh, the ATA, like I did, he's He's always very generous with his time, and just a just a, uh, a humble gentleman to sit down and talk to. And I, I appreciate your time again, Lindsay. Well, I, I can't believe we're done already. You sure you don't want to talk more about habitat? Because I'll do it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, in that case, let's uh, let's get you on again. Let's get you on again, if you don't mind, after the season, the hunting season's done, and we're all wondering about all the things we should have done last year. And, and I know i sat there in my tree stand with a list of things. Okay, I, I need to do that different. I need to cut this here. I mean, I have tell you what, I did more of that than watching deer, I think.
1: Well, I'd love to come back home, Jared. I, I mean, we didn't even get into one of my favorite areas, which is tree planting. Um, and that's just one of my personal favorites. It's kind of a – it's not as important as – uh do it you know managing early successional cover and food plots like we've talked about but it's a fun way to set up some great attraction points for stand locations when you plant fruit trees and, and attraction trees for deer but i have made some big mistakes in that area and learned a lot in it so maybe next time we can talk about that i'd love to talk about tree plantings
2: we will do that Lindsay. that sounds great and like brian said thank you so much for your time really appreciate you coming on and uh you know, spending your time and telling us all, everything you know about Habitat and the QDMA. So, thanks again. Thanks a lot, guys. Well, another one in the books, Brian. What did you think about Lindsey Thomas, Jr. from the QDMA?
0: Great source of information. Uh, Super guy. I've had the pleasure of meeting him in person and talking other things. Not a whole lot about more than deer because we kind of get stuck on that subject that everybody has heard, but. Super guy, glad he was able to come on, and I know I learned a lot, and I I know our listeners will get a lot out of this.
2: Yeah, he he was an awesome guest. Um, I forgot to ask him, I'm wondering who's hunting that uh, QDMA uh, test property down there, that 150 acres. Who do you think's hunting that?
0: (laughs) I'm sure there's a long (laughs) line of volunteers.
2: (laughs) Yes, I mean, you get some of those city bucks living behind Sam's Club, they get pretty big, you know.
0: Definitely. You see those guys, um, even in Atlanta, that are putting down those big ones on that Seek 1 production.
3: Oh, yeah, yeah.
2: There's
0: some big ones down in that state, for sure.
2: No, I just want to thank you again, Lindsey, for coming on. Um, What a great podcast. We're going to get him back on for that. We'll call it the advanced tree planting episode. Uh, we're going to get definitely, that coming up. Definitely. Recorded this winter yet. Uh, I'm going to thank the listeners for tuning into the podcast once again. Thank our sponsors, the Habitat Hook from Nation's Creations, the Packer Max Cult of Packers from Lincoln Roan at Best Outdoors, and Killer Food Plots, uh, Nick Percy over there at KFP with his seed and great products. Thank you guys for supporting the podcast. If you want to hear more from us, you can check us out at HabitatPodcast.com. All of our podcasts are up there. Uh, We're going to have some blog stuff coming up there soon. You can get a link to our YouTube and everything else, Instagram, Facebook, all up there. Um, I did a poll the other day on Facebook. It seems like most of our listeners are on iTunes. That's a great place to find us and and leave a good review. Um, I sent out a bunch of details earlier this week to people leaving nice reviews, so thank you guys for that. Spotify, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, anywhere you guys listen to a podcast, you should be able to find us. Just search uh, Habitat Podcast. Uh, Thanks again for tuning in. Brian and I will be back to you soon with another great podcast episode where we're becoming better Habitat managers.